Working for the Catholic Church and growing up in Houston, I think a lot about what it means to be a multicultural or an intercultural church. While I definitely don't believe that people should be forced to believe anything, I do believe that every person should be able to find a home in the Catholic Church. And I get frustrated when we fall short of this. But how to make everyone feel welcome isn't an easy question because there are so many different expressions of the faith, even within the black Catholic community. Some black Catholics worship in more of what we might consider a European style context, whereas others may prefer a traditionally black worship style. If you go into the vast majority of parishes in the United States, you see images of European descent, saints, um, white saints, white Jesus. Beside the point that Jesus was a Middle Eastern man, probably didn't have blue eyes, the bigger point or question rather is, what does this say to black people, people of diverse backgrounds? Does it say this religion is for you, this tradition is heritage for you? And is it a surprise that there aren't more black priests, religious people who didn't grow up with this tradition who do choose this tradition in the christian tradition statues point to something beyond themselves and these symbols are no different they show a racial division in our country that cuts so deep that even the place where people should feel the most welcome in the world they don't i'm edward herrera and this is the ark and the dove a podcast about faith resilience and hope in the black Catholic community. In this episode, Jay will pick up where he left off last week, sharing the story of Edmondson Village, a neighborhood in West Baltimore, and this time we'll be exploring St. Bernadine, the Catholic church in the heart of the village. If we look at the story of Edmondson Village through the eyes of the church, we have to visit the Catholic parish in the village, St. Bernardine's. It's hard to imagine a time when St. Bernardine's wasn't a black Catholic parish. The rich African fabrics throughout the church, the gospel choir, and the pictures of black saints throughout the parish office. But before the events of the 50s and 60s that we talked about in the last episode, most black Catholics in Baltimore attended St. Peter Claver and St. Gregory's Church in West Baltimore. Or even what's considered by many the first black Catholic parish in the United States, St. Francis Xavier. Here's Debbie G. Baptist talking about her experience of St. Gregory's, followed by St. Bernardine's. We felt a little more at home. Uh, there was more of a combination of blacks and whites there. We uh, were more accepted, so to speak, at St. Gregory. Uh, so we did all kinds of things at St. Gregory's. Now, I was a child at St. Gregory's. So because I came to St. Bernardine when I was eight years old, most of the activities and organizations that I was involved in, I was involved at St. Bernardine. And in this period of time, the 1960s, St. Bernardine's went from an all-white congregation to an all-black congregation. We explored the village during this period of time in great detail in the last episode. But I think that looking inside the doors of the church tells us something of the depth of the racial divide in this country. And this was only 50-something years ago. Some listeners might not remember that time, but certainly your parents and grandparents do. And memories aren't that easily erased. I remember it used to be said that Catholicism was white. It was a white man's religion. Debbie didn't mince words. I loved interviewing her. She's passed away now, but she was a lifelong Catholic, and we talked for a long time in 2019. 
I did not have exposure to other churches. We did not visit other churches. So I couldn't really tell you about Baptist religion or Jewish faith or Episcopalian. We were only exposed to Catholicism. We did not go to other churches. We only went to Catholic churches. And they used to tease us because um, our last name is Baptist. And Monsignor Vaith started it by saying we were the only Baptist Catholic that he knew. But only a handful of African Americans that moved to Edmondson Village were Catholic. Most were Baptist, Methodist, even some Presbyterians. But there was something different about Edmondson Village. Perhaps it was the influence of James Keelty, a stonemason from Roscommon, Ireland, the man responsible for building Edmondson Village and constructing state-of-the-art row homes in the early 1920s. He built St. Bernadine's Church, which he named after his daughter, Nora Bernadine, who died at the age of six. Some Catholics might find that surprising. I know I did. But there just seems to be a culture of Catholicism that's stitched and woven into every block, every row home, every blade of grass, and every person who passes through there. Robbie Davis, who you heard from in the last episode, isn't Catholic. When we met in his baseball card shop, he shared some of his memories of the old neighborhood. Um, Our friends... Uh, who were Catholic, they would go shoplift at Hosea Cones on Saturday and go Sunday and tell the priest that they shoplift on Hosea Cones and on Monday take the stuff back. I said, man, because they were Catholics. That's what, uh, you know, Catholics do. They go and uh, ask for forgiveness because when we stole the stuff, we kept it. But they didn't. I mean, <laughs> I mean, that's, I couldn't believe it. Man, that Catholic guilt is real. Then there are folks like Mary and Rocky Bird, who we heard from in the last episode, who became converts to the faith. I'm a holiness girl. I was brought up in the holiness church. And I was Baptist. How'd you guys end up in the Catholic church? Well, it's something I always wanted to be. I'm, I, would, I always wanted to go to the Catholic school because the nuns were so nice. And nuns have been a big part of my life. I um, worked at Mercy Hospital when I was 14 years old in the summer we went there. Of course, some of them were were not so nice, but some of them were. And the one, Sister Germaine, I couldn't work with patients. I worked in the supply room. And she just took me over. She made me do my homework. The days that I worked in the evening, she was just like a mother to me, a second mother. And I met some girls that I worked with that they had been in the Catholic school and it was it seemed like it was so different than, than the public school. And I um, decided then, I said, when I have children, they're going to go to Catholic school. And that was my goal, was to see that my children go to Catholic school. And I told my husband, and he went along with it. And he said, well, if that's what you want, that's what you want. So that's what we did. <laughs> In this city, Catholic schools are a big deal. I'm not sure whether it's like that in other places, but nine times out of 10, when you ask a native Baltimorean where they went to school, they won't tell you a university, but instead the Catholic high school they attended. After we decided, we uh, went and talked to the priest. We talked to, of course, Monsignor Vaith was the pastor. Well, he didn't want to have anything to do with us, so he didn't talk to us. But Father Woodhouse talked to us, and uh, 
we decided that we wanted to join. Now, keep in mind, at this time, St. Bernardine's is an all-white parish in a predominantly white neighborhood that is on the verge of a seismic shift. It's also home to an aging congregation. They were so old that St. Bernardine's baseball team found itself having to recruit younger non-Catholics from neighboring towns to maintain a full team. As Ed Orser mentioned, the aging population was one of the key factors that made Edmondson Village so susceptible to white flight and blockbusting. The resident priest at St. Bernardine's was Monsignor Louis Baith, who was described by some as a feisty and energetic character. And as African-American families like the Birds began showing up and joining St. Bernardine's, Monsignor Vaith would deliver powerful messages to the congregation, pounding his fists, demanding that the parishioners who were white stay in Edmondson Village. I, I mean, interviewees told me that he would get up in the pulpit and, and admonish people, you shall not leave this neighborhood. You owe it your commitment to the church to stay. Again, retired professor Ed Orzer, an expert on this period in Baltimore's history, who I met with at the Double T Diner. And he apparently was really quite dogmatic uh, with, with folks. And of course, that didn't necessarily uh, work. I mean, people moved anyway. Even William Donald Schaefer, who some would contend was the greatest mayor in the history of Baltimore, tried desperately to keep people from moving. You know, William Donald Schaefer, his mayor, lived in the neighborhood, and he went around and tried to urge people not to sell the blockbusters. And they listened to him and moved. Anyway. <laughs> but the reports about Monsignor Vaith's homilies indicated that his tone was definitely different from that of William Donald Schaefer. They were lectured in the, from the pulpit about, you better not leave, you better hold on. There was nothing. I, I, I got s a sense of no message of inclusion. Uh, it was a message of resistance. It, it wasn't threatening violence or something like that, but it was really appealing to people's loyalty as uh, a Catholic and a, and a white Catholic to, to stay. We were under Monsignor Vaith, and Monsignor Vaith was special. Um, it was rather obvious that he wasn't interested in integrating St. Bernardine. People in the Catholic Church were divided when it came to opinions on segregation and housing. In 1963, the Baltimore Cardinal Archbishop Sheehan issued a Lenten pastoral letter instructing that every Catholic has an obligation to promote racial equality. He wrote of unfair practices often fanned by unscrupulous and disreputable real estate brokers and speculators. Three years later, in 1966, City Council President Thomas D'Alessandro introduced a bill which would have banned discrimination in the sale and rental of all city housing. Cardinal Sheehan testified in favor of the bill. Bear with the poor audio and dated language here, but this is Cardinal Sheehan testifying to the Baltimore City Council. I join with leaders of other religious faiths, of labor, of business, and of civil rights uh, groups in urging the support of the Baltimore City Council for the proposed fair housing ordinance now pending before this honorable body. Since I have become Archbishop of Baltimore, I have expressed my concern about the plight of the Negro community in its search for decent housing. The dignity of the individual requires that no prohibition be placed against any person with respect to his place of habitation simply because of his race, religion, or ancestry. The overwhelming persuasive moral argument which calls for statutory relief is one which cannot be postponed or crippled. 
According to Catholic News Service, roughly half of the audience in the council room booed him prior to speaking. The Cardinal Archbishop's brother received an anonymous call threatening to shoot the Cardinal if he supported the bill. Tensions were high in and outside of the church. More on that after the break. Before the break, Jay was explaining the racial tensions around housing in the 1960s in Baltimore. Now he takes us back to St. Bernadine's Parish in Edmondson Village. In most Catholic parishes today, unless you're coming in late or sitting in a grumpy old person's seat, you can sit wherever you want. This wasn't the case at St. Bernadine's in the 1960s. One of the things that you did differently is the usher led you into church. You didn't just go and sit where you wanted to sit. They actually walked you to a pew. And when African-Americans like the birds began attending St. Bernadine's, they were all ushered to the back row. Again, Mary Bird. But you just don't go to church and sit in the back, as far as I was concerned. You, you, don't, you're not, you don't feel part of the service that way back. Saint, well, you know how St. Bernadine's is now. It was not like that then. The priest was back in the front. And you sat way back there. How are you going to get into the service? You know, sitting in the back of the church. And Mass was very short at that time. So if you don't get up there and get involved in it, the Mass is over with and you still don't know what happened. Yeah. Now, even though Catholicism is a universal church, your local parish is where you experience it the most. And there's one man who kind of sets the tone for the parish experience, and that's the pastor, which is very clear when you talk to the parishioners. Monsignor Vaith was pastor at St. Bernadine's from 1944 through 1968. He was pastor for 24 years, a time that spanned the end of the Second World War to the Civil Rights Movement. But saying that Monsignor Vaith didn't really want us here was obvious after I got older and realized the reason he wanted us all to sit in the back. He explained it to my father as, you know, by it being so many of us, it would guarantee that we could sit together. If all of us came in, we wouldn't have to worry about finding a row that would allow 10 people to, to sit. That didn't go well with my dad. Um, the priest after him were more receptive of the church transitioning from a white church to a black and white church. I said, how can we really say we love the Lord and yet sit next to each other and won't even... I mean, when we started with the kiss of peace, we had white people that wouldn't even touch our hands like we were going to rub off on them or something. And yet we were in church. Again, Professor Ed Orser. I did interview a uh, African-American woman who said when she first moved into Edmondson Village neighborhood and went to St. Bernie's when it was probably white, she and her family, as they came into the pew, heard a parishioner say rather loud whisper, oh, now they're coming to Mass too? <laughs> there were only a few African-American families attending St. Bernadine's, and Debbie G's father was one of the first to break protocol and take matters into his own hands. So from the second time we came to St. Bernardine, my father would go around the usher and go to approximately the third pew from the front of the church. Um, I remember this well because it was a 
very strong point with him. I did not understand it then because I was a child. I had been raised in a black environment, um, so I knew nothing of black and white. Everything was people. So we got attached to approximately the third pew from the front in the church. And to today, I still sit in the third pew uh, from the front. Rocky Bird also took matters into his own hands and actually became one of the first black ushers in this predominantly white parish. If I come to serve God in your church and you tell me you can serve your God, but you got to serve it in the back, that's not going to sit well with me. He then proceeded to seat all of the African-American families in the front, closest to the altar. It didn't even phase me, it didn't bother me at all. I just walked up there and said, sit here, and that was it. But before that, they all were sitting back there in the back as if they were scared to death. I said, how can I do this if I'm in church? So I carried them up and set them up there towards the front. Nobody said anything, they looked and all. You know, you could, I, feel, you could feel the tension. Yeah. But uh, nobody said anything. And when I came around to collect, you know, money, they spoke and I spoke mm -hmm. to them. And I, and I got so where I got to really know them one-on-one. -on -one. And I really didn't have any more problems after that. That's true. Because yeah. I would talk to them and they talked to me and got to be all right. As time went on, Mary and Rocky became friendly with Mr. and Mrs. Cook, an older white couple who attended St. Bernadine's and whose son was a priest in another church in Baltimore. They accepted me and didn't make no, well, I can't say it didn't make a difference that I was black, but uh, they took me under their arms and uh, I started doing the altar with them. We go every Friday, wash the altar down, set out priest things, and get his vestments and all that. And we had a little sewing group there. Uh, I guess it was between 10 and 15 women. And Miss Cook took me there to the circle on Tuesday. And she introduced me to them. Some of them spoke, some of them did not. But Miss Cook just told me, don't pay no attention to that. And we mingled together. And eventually they, they moved out of the church. I don't know their reasoning why. The neighborhood was changing. Church attendance was quickly dwindling, and Monsignor Vaith retired in 1968. As we talked about in the last episode, the neighborhood was in a state of transition, and St. Bernadine's was no different. They had a number of priests and pastors, and priests and pastors are people with personalities. And some were definitely better than others. He was different. I'm going to say it like that. Oh, I, I don't know what I'm going to say. He was over the, over the top for me. That's all. I, no, I don't want to put it, put it mildly <laughs> over the off the chain. He was not into highly successful women. I'm gonna say it like that. Some of, I don't. Some of the people liked him, and a great deal of them didn't like him, the way he was too mass and all. Yes, we did lose some because of the language he would use. That didn't go well with my dad. He liked to party because he he made a statement, 
that we could take all these pews up, put chairs here in the church, and we could have us a party on Saturday nights. I am serious. I, I wouldn't have said that if it wasn't true. I believe Father Coronin was probably the first one who actually acted like he enjoyed being here and he acted like it was important that we feel like this was our church, not a church, our church. And then there was Monsignor Ed Miller. He arrived at St. Bernardine's in 1975, and while I never met Father Miller since he passed away in 2013, his spirit lives on. I feel like the picture that hangs in the office of him holding up two crabs with a grin on his face tells me everything I need to know about him. He loved the people, and the people love him. Because Father Miller made a big impact on St. Bernardine and is the reason that we grew to the numbers that we did. Um, He was just a person that loved who he was, thereby being a priest, Uh, He loved being at St. Bernardine, and it was important to him that each person at St. Bernardine felt special, felt that the old saying was, Jesus loves you. Father Miller enacted the fact that Jesus loved each and every one. He made everybody feel special and everybody wants to feel special that to me is what catholicism is supposed to be regardless of what your ethnicity is that you're supposed to feel that you are special not only in god's eyes but also in the eyes of the church every individual is special No one should feel like they are not welcome, that they don't belong. Everybody should feel like we're all working together to be Christ-like. And that's what's important. And Father Miller personally went out in the whole neighborhood and talked to everybody. He found out who was Catholic, who was not. And that was because with Father Miller, it was not only church, it was a family. It was a whole church family. And he welcomed people, he encouraged people to bring friends, to bring other people, to see what Catholicism was about. No pressure, but just invite people. We had a very strong gospel choir. Many converts came because of the gospel choir. The gospel choir went to Rome to sing in front of the Pope twice. Well, you know, I I was struggling. Uh, He taught me how, how how can you say you love the Lord and yet you don't love the people that you see? I, I had to struggle with that, and I prayed over it and everything, and uh, I come to the conclusion, and, and he told me this, you can love everybody, but you don't have to like their ways. Father Miller was well-loved throughout Baltimore. I caught up with retired Father Michael Roach, who was in seminary with Father Miller, 
whom he fondly refers to as Big Eddie. Yeah, my classmate, I love Big Eddie. He was so dedicated to the black apostle in this town and loved it. Uh, you go to his room and he had dozens of pictures of graduations uh, from the various African-American uh, students that he had served throughout his life. Uh, he, he just knew black Baltimore more than any other Catholic priest ever did. I really am convinced that he knew the people, he knew the families, he knew uh, what was uh, working, what didn't work, uh, what you don't make a, yourself a fool over. He was uh, absolutely remarkable, uh, utterly dedicated. He was a West Baltimore kid himself. He was from St. Joe's Monastery Parish originally. Great family, splendid man, great preacher. Had the whole uh, black methodology of preaching downright. And he said, he, he talked to a group one time I heard, he said, don't pretend you're black, you know. Use some other methodologies, that's fine, but don't, don't ever try to pass yourself off as a black man. You're not. So uh, he was just very wise, uh, very street smart, and 100% for his people. Even the prominent social activist, Vinnie Quayle, who you heard from last episode, appreciated Father Miller's ministry. So he was very active in getting us involved in Edmondson Village. Oh, he was a wonderful guy. He was absolutely wonderful. One Sunday morning in 2013, while preparing to serve Mass, as he did every Sunday, Father Miller passed away unexpectedly. The church was shocked and devastated. The deacon had said to him, Father Eddie, when are you going to retire? He said, the Lord will take care of that. And within a few weeks, they found him dead on the kitchen floor and the rector getting ready to say Mass. But uh, he lived and died for his people. I'm very proud to have known him <laughs> and uh, uh, called him my brother. Father Miller was just, I call him my gift from God. There was the answer to my prayers. He was not just my pastor. I get very emotional when I talk about him. He was my best friend beside my husband. My husband will always be my best friend. But Father Miller was right next to him. And he really saved St. Bernardine's. And I love my church today because of the things that he helped me to understand. And uh, he was just a good person. In 2014, Monsignor Rich Bozzelli, who was mentored by Father Miller, became the new pastor and remains there to this day. I recently had an opportunity to sit down and talk with him. You know, St. Bernardine's is, has always been regarded as one of the top uh, parishes, not only in the city, but in the archdiocese. And so just the opportunity to follow in his footsteps was just, you know, a, a great honor for me. Throughout its turbulent history, with all of its highs and lows, while dozens of neighboring churches closed their doors as Evanston Village looked different and integrated in the 60s and 70s, St. Bernardine's Parish made it through. It continues to thrive as a vibrant American parish. But unfortunately, Evanston Village isn't what it used to be. More on that after the break. Before the break, Jay was talking about how St. Bernadine's continues to thrive in the midst of a now-challenged Edmonton Village. As the neighborhood transitioned from white to black, the church was not the only pillar in the community affected. The Edmondson Village Shopping Center, that once crowning jewel of the community and the first of its kind, was now not so unique. In addition to the Westview Shopping Center just a few miles away, there was now Security Square Shopping Center, also on the west side of the county. James Meyerhoff sold the Edmondson Village Shopping Center in the 1970s to Honolulu Holdings, a company owned by a man named Harry Weinberg. 
Here again is former Maryland State Senator Mitchell talking about Weinberg. And so here comes Weinberg, and, you know, the, the heirs don't have the same uh, passion and commitment that the, the forebears did in doing the development. So um, he was just no good. He was an unscrupulous speculator and developer. He bought all the vacant buildings in downtown, the center of uh, Howard Street and that, and left these vacant buildings there, and they became a real eyesore to the community. And again, Dr. John Tillman a native of Baltimore and professor of history at Tuskegee University. Harry Weinberg was actually born in Baltimore City, right? He was born and raised, but he lived in Honolulu. So he purchased the store, but he's so detached because he's so far away. He's so detached from Baltimore. You know, there's no relationship there. If you're going to own a business and run it, you know, you have to be part of the people, you have to be part of the store and everything else. He really did not want to redevelop the Emerson Village Shopping Center. And I guess he just kind of wanted a way out of it. And over time, as some of the housing began to deteriorate, get boarded up, Emerson Village started to deteriorate and boarded up. But the sale of Emerson Village Shopping Center in the 1970s was not the only thing that affected the neighborhood. There was also the infamous Highway to Nowhere. The Highway to Nowhere was a proposed east-west highway that ran through the west side of the city. The idea was to create a highway from downtown Baltimore to the county line, which would link the major interstate highways that surrounded Baltimore City. The most generous possible reading of the project is that the suburban residents who worked in the downtown Baltimore area needed a quick and easy way, avoiding all the traffic lights, to get to work. But a more common reading is that in the 1960s, white residents who lived in the Baltimore suburbs didn't want to have to drive through all the black neighborhoods on their way to work. In the 1980s, because of a public outcry, the highway was halted, leaving the project unfinished. In the meantime, it destroyed 62 businesses and 971 homes, displacing 1,500 West Baltimore residents. The highway to nowhere is a six-lane open wound in West Baltimore. This mile-and-a-half stretch of road was supposed to be an east-west expressway. Again, former State Senator Mitchell. It was terrible because there was a whole part of West Baltimore that was black middle-class homeowners, and they used condemnation to seize all of these properties, and, and that was the black middle class. When the project was abandoned, these displaced communities were never restored and the 1.39 mile long highway running east and west through the city still remains today. What is often described as a concrete desert, the highway to nowhere is an eyesore and a reminder of racial division in the city. The wide ditch that was dug out to lay the road literally divides part of the city, appearing as if a body of water once ran through it. The highway just ends on a patch of grass. By the mid 1970s, Baltimore turned its attention away from industry. Much of it moved overseas, and instead the city moved toward more tourism and the development of what is known as the Inner Harbor. So the mayor of Baltimore City at the time, William Donald Schaefer, asked for community building block grants to help build up that area. Those grants would give each community, including him and Edmondson Village, the ability to revitalize and develop housing and businesses, etc. Now many folks would speculate, Professor John Tillman being one of them, that all of the block grant money was poured into the downtown area. Many people argue that. I'm one who think it's true. However, there's been documentation of that. It got to the point where city councilman Thomas Waxter, he wrote a letter. He actually writes a letter to Donald Schaefer. In the letter, Councilman Waxter pleads with then-Mayor William Donald Schaefer to earmark grant money to build up Edmondson Village, Edmondson Avenue, and the Edmondson Village Shopping Center that were all deteriorating. These block grants were federal funds that were available to help local communities in cities like Baltimore. 
But, as John Tillman and others have pointed out, the grant money was used to develop and improve other areas of the city, like the Inner Harbor, Fells Point, and Federal Hill, and not communities most in need, like Edmondson Village. So that was another issue why I argued that Emerson Village Shopping Center was abandoned because there were other areas of the city that the city business people and politicians wanted to invest in. It's, it's, it's striking because, of course, William Donald Schaefer, he grew up in, what, Emerson and Hilton Street, actually. And, of course, he was a city councilman representing that particular area, which it was, at that time, called the 5th District. And, you know, he represented that area. So it was it's striking that he would abandon it, of course. As city leaders focused on the Inner Harbor and other segments of the city, Evanston Village and West Baltimore continued to decline. And what the village looks like today compared to what it looked like in the 1970s is staggering. Driving down Edmondson Avenue today, the shopping center that was once designed to captivate onlookers with awe now disappears into the backdrop of a neighborhood in distress. Just a day after I was down there, in broad daylight, this happened. Raw emotion in the voices of people who live near the Edmondson Avenue shopping center. Yeah, Denise, police believe that all five of the victims that were shot this morning are students at Edmondson Westside High School, and one of those victims, a 16-year-old, has died. Again, Lachelle Bynum, who you heard from in the last episode. Every corner or block has two or three chicken and subs. It's just, it, and it makes the city look raggedy. It just does. I mean, if, if it's not, if it's, if it's not another bar, it's a wing spot, sub spot, liquor store, and it's just too many. Shootings and stabbings kept Baltimore police busy on another weekend just in the city. One this afternoon, officers were called to the 2200 block of Edmondson Avenue, where they found a man. Canvas decided of Sunday's deadly septuple shooting in the 2500 block of Edmondson Avenue. The current owners of Edmondson Village Shopping Center promised up to $3 million in improvements that included plans to build townhomes on vacant lots behind the old shopping center. Years later, it's home to piles of debris and trash. The way Emerson Village looks now, compared to what it used to look like, it looks like a city dump. It's horrible. It's, uh, you know, it, it, West Baltimore looks like a bombed out area. It looks like parts of Afghanistan. And it's outrageous that it does. Michelle Bynum, Anne's daughter, who reminisced the many fond memories she had of growing up in Edmondson Village, told me about a confrontation she had with a gas station convenience store owner recently. It's so surreal, it almost seems made up, but it really illustrates the depth and the breadth of the challenges communities like Edmondson Village face. The owner had posted a sign advertising lighters for the use of smoking crack. I'll never forget it, about two years ago, I went in the Shell station, and I'm like, I got like two people in front of me, about three or four behind me. But the whole time, I'm looking, you know how they got the, the plexiglass? And he's got cigarette lighters in there, talking about for your crack, crack lighters. So when I got to the thing, I said, um, excuse me. I said, what is this up in here? What is this cigarette lighter thing? Oh, that's for your crack. I said, I said what makes you think everybody in the village smokes crack? And I'm like to myself, ain't nobody saying nothing. I said, really? As a patron of your store? and a member of Emerson Village, you need to take that down. First of all, you got kids coming through that store. You don't do that. Yeah, he looked, first he looked at me like, excuse me, I don't know you excuse me. You need to take that down. Miss Ann Bynum, who we've heard from in this episode and the last episode, are one of the few parishioners from the 1960s that remain in Evanston Village. Her daughter, Lachelle, has moved out. And I look at these young guys, you know, and I said, you know what? I'm 58 years old. 
I can go get three of them off the street. They got more obituaries for their friends being gone than I do, and I'm 58. All their friends are already gone. Once again, Robbie Davis. I got out. I, I don't have any friends that I know of in Edmonton Village. Because no, all, all my friends are in jail or dead. You know, they, they went to jail or they died. I was one of the ones that got out. He's blessing me deep. Right here where I stand. Since working on this project, I've spent a lot of time in the village. For a while on Thursday nights, I would drive down Route 40 for choir practice in St. Bernardine's, past the crumbling row homes, the Edmondson Village Shopping Center, the crime and the corner stores. At the conclusion of choir practice, I would quickly rush out to my car. Father Rich Bazzelli, pastor at St. Bernardine's, told me that the parish doesn't usually have events at night because people don't want to drive into the village after dark. As I began interviewing the parishioners of St. Bernardine's, I discovered that the majority of them no longer live in Edmondson Village, but still drive in every week to attend Mass on Sundays. I asked Father Rich how you can have an authentic community church when most folks are coming in from other communities. He explained how the church's two gold domes still remain a beacon of hope in Edmondson Village. Yeah, I, th I think... First, it's typical of city parishes, So, and I've done most of my ministry in city parishes, so it's not a dynamic that I'm unused to. Um, it, even though many of the folks didn't live in the neighborhood, they had connections with the neighborhood. Many of them may have been in the neighborhood at one point and then moved out and just continued to, to, to return. Father Miller was always very insistent that the church be connected to the community, so it didn't matter if you lived here or not, when the church was going to do something in the community, you were going to do it with them. A prayer walk is held by the church every January in honor of both Martin Luther King Jr. and the late Father Ed Miller. It memorializes victims of violence at Edmondson Village. And despite the cold weather, the prayer walk is well attended and seemed to make an impression, even on those who watch from their stoops and the corner stores. All right. We're at the corner of uh, Allendale and Edmondson, uh, and, and here uh, was a um, Sunday afternoon. We have a lot of dirt bikes going up and down Edmondson uh, Avenue, uh, and a uh, young man, 19-year-old, Sean Williams, was down here uh, and uh, encountered uh, someone we don't really know a lot of the details, and he was shot in the head and killed right, right here where we're standing. Um, so we do want to uh, remember him and his family, and we remember all of those victims of violence, as, as always. Father, we thank you for the opportunity you are giving us today. We thank you for creating every one of us in your own image and in your likeness. We are indeed sorry for every occasion when we have treated ourselves the way Cain treated Abel. The Ark and the Dove was written and produced by Edward Herrera and Jay Lampart with help from Louis Damani Jones. Editing and creative direction by Sarah Perla. Theme, outro music, and sound design by Jay Lampart. Additional music by Dietrich Goodwin and the St. Bernardine's Choir. John Papa Jay Lampart played the harmonica. Artwork by Tom Grillo. In addition to Ed Orser's research and Taro Patilla's book, Not in My Neighborhood, How Bigotry Shaped a Great American City, was very helpful in the making of this episode. Special thanks to Siobhan Hagen and Marmia, the Mid-Atlantic Regional Moving Image Archive. 
WMAR-TV for the coverage of Cardinal Archbishop Sheehan's testimony, and the Catholic Review for their reporting on the incident. Thank you to the OSV Institute for Catholic Innovation and the Notre Dame Idea Center for their early support. Most importantly, thanks to Monsignor Rich Bazzelli, the parishioners of St. Bernardine's, and the countless other individuals willing to share their story for the making of this podcast. The Ark and the Dove is a production of Balthazar Media. For more information, please visit balthazarmedia.com.